1: for an absolutely charming welcome. We are discussing earlier Colin's bookshelf um, on which he's got a signed copy of uh, Monica Lewinsky's book and a signed copy of Bill Clinton's book next to each other <laughs> and a signed copy of Edwina Curry's book and a signed copy of John Major's book next to each other. So we're discussing where my book will go um, <laughs> uh, and we'll, we'll probably conf- conf- uh, finalise the conversation in private. But... Um, Thank you for your wonderful enthusiasm as we prepared for this event, Colin, it's been great. Uh, let me also begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. And in the spirit of reconciliation, let me pay my respects to their elders past and present. I feel very privileged to speak uh, here tonight in this part of Ngunnawal country uh, on what's now Acton Peninsula, uh, because I'm fitted to this bit of land, as James McCauley put it, as the soul is to the body. Like some of you I know, I was born about 25 minutes walk south of here at the old Canberra Hospital. Gone now, of course. The first time I overheard... I'm also quite nervous, actually. (laughs) The first time I overheard the Starbuck Martyr sung was about 10 minutes walk west at the chapel at Johns, across the creek. I first put money over the bar at the workers club, very much a students club by then. Gone now too, about 10 minutes walk east. And one day I'll probably see the Owls win a game on North Oval, but not yet. I found out a bit about the nature of things on this campus. In the AD Hope Building, I read the Shipping News in fourth year here. And in a discussion of the climactic scene, my tutor turned to me and said, now Michael, you should explain this Catholic custom of a wake to the group. And that was the first I knew the wake wasn't a universal human practice. I was 21 years old and it never occurred to me that not everyone did that. I read Wuthering Heights here as well. The lecture was up in Coombs. And in the tute, we debated whether Emily Bronte's novel is gothic or romantic, a debate that hinged on whether the action could be considered realistic in human terms. My son, a first year, recently sat the same tute, actually. I made the romantic case, arguing that even if you didn't put aside Cathy's ghost, but especially if you did, there was nothing else in the action that couldn't be considered naturalistic. Someone said, don't be stupid, Heathcliff gets so angry, he literally bangs his head against the tree until he bleeds. So, that was also a moment when I realised other families were a bit different from mine. <laughs> uh, this university is also where I first heard Paul Keating speak other than in a parliament, uh, where I joined his Labour right and then joined his Labour party in 1994. Though I wasn't active in campus politics, I was active in the ACTA P branch and here's where I met young Labour activists, ANU students like Andrew Barr and Jim Chalmers, whose son is here, uh, and sleeping peacefully through us, um, her, people whose journey I've been privileged to share in the sadly many years since. And uh, I know there are still some cracking young activists on this campus, people like Josh Belitho and Ben Kramer and Josh Orchard, Josh Orchard and my mate Megan Lane. And I cut my debating teeth here as well, turning up every month to meetings to oppose motions condemnatory of the then Labor government for betraying the legacy of the one that preceded it. I've spent a lot of time on campus since the first time I graduated, including studying in the old Department of International Relations, not long before the world changed at the end of 2001, and at the Crawford School for a happy season after June 2013. Tom, I remember walking up Liversidge Street on my first day and looking at old Canberra House and thinking, when hard pressed, I cried to the Lord, he brought me into a spacious place. (laughs) But this isn't a commencement address. What I wanted to talk to you about tonight is not what I find when I return to this campus, It's what I've taken with me from my lives on this campus and what that meant for this book. And those are two things. The first, integrity. Um, Wherever I go, I've got imprinted in me the sublime examples of individual intellectual integrity I met here, people who set no limit to thought. Honest, sceptical mentors like the late Father Ephraim Chifley OP, and the dear late Axel Clark, uh, and an admired teacher like Dr Jane Adamson who always made me think of Olivia and Twelfth Night. And partisanship on the other hand, because I also carry the stamp on me of the partisan identity I finally fully formed here. Um, as a labor activist, one who unhesitatingly put his mind in service of his party. One who took for granted and takes for granted that in the public contest over ideas and resources in Australia, labor was progress and progress was labor that a fist was stronger than five fingers, and that nothing could be achieved by the group unless individuals gave a proper submission of the intellect and will. These two ideals, integrity and partisanship, are what I most carry with me from this place to all the other places life takes me, uh, even when I don't live up to them, including into the windowless room in Parliament House where I wrote speeches for Prime Minister Gillard, and the study in Western Creek where I wrote the Gillard Project. And they're what I want to discuss now. not each as Poles operating in tension, but really as each modifying the other. Uh, More precisely, I want to talk about the integrity of partisanship. This whole idea of partisanship was always very romantic to me. My earliest memories of the outside world are of the adventures of Tom Sullivan on the Crawford's television series, where he was fighting alongside the partisans in Crete say Crete and there is little more to tell of muddle taller's treachery, despair and black defeat resounding like a bell. And then I remember the same time arguing with his father about the details of the anti-communism of the post-war period. Hadn't those same partisans been comms? This was probably why I also supported Bill Hayden's opposition to the US boycott of the Moscow Olympic Games, which was my first specific political opinion. I was quite a small boy. The little world of Don Camillo, The short stories by Goreshi, which are very wise on the Cold War questions, did nothing to de-romanticise partisanship for me. The background to these Italian tales is that the Po Valley village's Catholic priest, Camillo DiRocci, who is as cunning a poor priest from the plains as ever lived, had carried heavy machine guns alongside the village's communist mayor, Papone, as a partisan against the fascists during the war. And he buried some of those guns at the end of the war for future use. Periodically, Don Camillo has to be persuaded by his lord not to dig them up again for use against Papone. But for, for all of that in my private political dreaming, it's true to say that the partisan as thinker and writer doesn't have a romantic public image. What do we think of the person who thinks with the mind of the party? I think we think this. Winston had finished his bread and cheese. He turned a little sideways in his chair. At the table on his left, the man with the strident voice was still talking remorselessly away. The voice never stopped for an instant. Winston knew the man by sight, though he knew no more about him than that he held some important post in the fiction department. What was slightly horrible was that from the stream of sound that poured out of his mouth, it was almost impossible to distinguish a single word. Just once Winston caught a phrase, complete and final elimination of Goldsteinism jerked out very rapidly and, as it seemed, all in one piece, like a line of type cast solid. For the rest, it was just a noise, a quack, quack, quacking. And yet, though you could not actually hear what the man was saying, you could not be in any doubt about its general nature. Whatever it was, you could be certain that every word of it was pure orthodoxy, pure ing sock. As he watched the eyeless face, with the jaw moving rapidly up and down, Winston had a curious feeling that this was not a real human being, but some kind of dummy. It was not the man's brain that was speaking, it was his larynx. The stuff that was coming out of him consisted of words, but it was not speech in the true sense. It was a noise uttered in unconsciousness, like the quacking of a duck. Thanks to George Orwell in 1984, I think that is our leading image of the partisan mind, that of the duck speaker. The public partisan voice is an even more ridiculous and dishonest figure in 1984. On a scarlet-draped platform, an orator of the inner party was haranguing the crowd. His voice, made metallic by the amplifiers, boomed forth an endless catalogue of atrocities committed by Oceania's enemy Eurasia. The speech had been proceeding for perhaps 20 minutes when a messenger hurried onto the platform and a scrap of paper was slipped into the speaker's hand. He unrolled it and read it without pausing in speech. Nothing altered in his voice or manner or in the content of what he was saying, but suddenly the names were different. Without words said, a wave of understanding rippled through the crowd. Oceania was at war with East Asia. The next moment there was a tremendous commotion. The banners and posters with which the square was decorated were all wrong. Quite half of them had the wrong faces on them. It was sabotage. The agents of Goldstein had been at work. There was a riotous interlude while posters were ripped from the walls, banners torn to shreds and trampled underfoot. So this, we know, is doublethink at its finest. Just as Orwell's fictional characters set this shattering stereotype of life on the party line, so the hugely admirable elements of his own character and career set us this wonderful type of the honorable dissident, the alienated insider, um, a man of the left, free of the lies and murder of Stalinism and of the lousy muddling through of the social democratic parties. As appealing as Orwell's deep, deep integrity is though, I think that for the political person, his is a paradoxical image. Uh, There's a kind of despair at politics uh, present in that conception of the political saint as the man outside the system. The Catholic hagiography of Thomas More contains a similar trace. It feels hard that it's it's his resignation of the chancellorship that makes him the patron saint of politicians. So I was thinking of all this at the Melbourne Dog Show recently. Uh, There I was interviewed in an outside broadcast box by 3AW radio host Dennis Walter, who has the afternoon slot formerly held by Ernie Sigley. Talk about standing on the shoulders of giants. Anyway, (laughs) Dennis Walter, who I should add, was a total pro uh, and full of courtesy uh, on a station not noted for its editorial tendency to gloss over the faults of the former government and prime minister, um, began by saying, One thing we like in life is honesty, and this is an honest book, which obviously worried me. Um, Some brilliant critic once described Graham Richardson's book as candid, if not exactly honest. Uh, And that's kind of what I was aiming for. I'll just tell you, a bit of an aside here. One of the fascinating things about writing the book was working out which names people in the publishing business thought the audience would immediately recognise and which names they thought needed explanation. So you don't need to say who Don Watson is, and you don't need to say who George Megalogenis is, but you do need to say who Graeme Freudenberg is. And uh, my editor had never heard of Graeme Richardson, and she edits political books, um, which I thought, yeah, anyway, without bagging the right, like, I think (laughs) perhaps there is hope in generational change. Anyway, um, candid, if not exactly honest, was kind of what I was aiming for. Honest sounds a bit too like revelatory, which in turn sounds a bit too like disloyal for me. In the preface to the Gillard Project I write, it's very much my story, I don't speak for everyone and I don't tell everything. Legitimately in staff work and in life, there are some confidences to protect and some responsibilities to respect. Always in life, there are some things better left unsaid. In Walden, Henry David Thoreau wrote, you'll pardon some obscurities, for there are more secrets in my trade than in most men's and yet not voluntarily kept, but inseparable from its very nature. I would gladly tell all that I know about it and never paint no admittance on my gate. i continue, but I'll tell you as much as makes sense and as much as I can. In part, my choice to write what I hope is a loyal and I acknowledge is at times a discreet book is driven by a bit of humour, humility, perspective, and forgiveness, including self-forgiveness. It's fair to say that among the many kind words I've had in private about the book from former colleagues, and I should say there's a few here today, and uh, I'm very grateful for your presence and your support. Uh, You know that part of you pours out of me in these lines from time to time. Um, But if there's a consistent negative theme, it's been that you're too kind about N, and the identity of N varies. Um, It's not always McN. N, but I'm happy with that. I never wanted to be querulous or set the record straight, much less settle scores. Uh, and I also knew a lot better than to lead with my chin. Uh, Charity draws a veil over a multitude of sins. In part, this approach is also, the approach I've taken is also because uh, my honest analysis of the period 2010 to 2013 is that the policy project of the then government is more interesting and more relevant to the Australian future than the politics of the Labor caucus in that time. In part, I also think that the contest between Labor and conservatism is a more important explanatory factor in understanding what happened to the country than either the contest within Labor or the occasional failings of Labor's strategy or culture. And I suppose also I have to acknowledge that the contest within Labor and our failings of strategy or culture don't exactly represent a gap in the literature. The coming ABC TV documentary series on the Rudd and Gillard governments is to be titled The Killing Season. Now, I didn't expect it to be called the Rose in Winter, uh, <laughs> but seriously, wow! Well, this is the crisis of overstatement in Australian politics at its toxic tectonic best. Those are all reasons. Those are all reasons why, just as a person aiming for individual intellectual integrity, I, I could have approached the task of telling you in this book what I, what I learned while I wrote speeches for a Labor Prime Minister, in the way that I have. But, I didn't only write with a view to individual integrity. I wrote it with a view to the integrity of a partisan. the PM herself nods to this in a very generous and, I'd have to say, canny cover comment, writing, no one else could make you smile, nod in agreement, furrow your brow in disagreement, and then at the most unexpected moments, offer you an ode to Labor's spirit. Another friend of mine, an independent journalist, wrote to me that he couldn't give me a cover comment because the book is, in his words, a love letter to Labor and a love letter to Gillard. Which I knew he knew I would take as a compliment. Um, So puzzling away at this question of the intellectual integrity of a loyal book or a loyal person wasn't only prompted by Dennis Walter. it's, It's also prompted by the memory of a friend of mine, a Beasley press secretary, pressing me for my view as policy director on one of our more populist and less nuanced interventions of the mid-2000s to do with petrol prices and saying to me, do you agree with this? And I said, uh, oh mate, I don't not agree with it. Um, he laughed and I shrugged. I write in the Gillard Project, what did Hugh Gates write of at the general strike in 1926? He would not desert his side just because it had miscalculated its means. And that was really a debate over what was a good tactic, not what was the right thing to do. The question of partisan integrity is also prompted for me by the question I find hardest to answer when asked about my time writing for the Prime Minister or indeed advising two of her predecessors as Labor leader. People say, what did you do when you didn't agree with what she was saying or what they were doing? And it feels like a really crappy evasion to say it really didn't arise. Um, but that's kind of my story. Um, people wonder a bit at that answer and I suppose I wonder about it too. Does it mean I am or was or became a cipher? Um, I don't think so. I hope not. I I really do think it's a question of partisan integrity. Judith Brett has persuasively argued that one reason for the continued identification of Australian Catholics with Labour after the First World War was their alienation from the language of masculine judgment and individual conscience adhered to by Protestant leaders of politics on the conservative side in Australia at that time. I should say she doesn't deny the other factors like class and conscription, but she writes this factor back in in a particularly interesting way. I find this a very clever and persuasive analysis. I picture the editorialists and aldermen fulminating against Labor. The MPs submit their conscience to a collective. They submit their intellect to a platform. They even acknowledge authority outside the parliament, outside the movement. The echoes of the same period's rock-chopping arguments about the cosmopolitan disloyalty and Popish authoritarianism of Irish society within Australia are unmistakable. I picture my grandfather reading in the paper that his local MP. does what he's told, not what he thinks himself, and thinking, "Good man." <laughs> that's, um, that's partisan integrity for you. I'm not a consequentialist. partisan integrity doesn't allow you to do the right thing for the, r- the wrong thing, for the right reason. And I don't think this is a license to kill. Was ri- Auden was right to want to unwrite the lines A necessary murder. And I don't think it's an escape from conscientious responsibility. Yes, partisan integrity is inseparable from the challenging ethics of political practice, from what de Gaulle said was the obligation to take risks, including moral risks. But it's more than that because the partisan integrity question goes to the question of who the moral agent is, the individual or the party. In February, Catherine Murphy in The Guardian Australia made a really fascinating study of the present Prime Minister, who I think to many even sympathetic long-term observers seems to have lost perhaps his better self and certainly his more interesting self as he became an ever more partisan figure in the role of Liberal leader. In Murphy's words, fitting himself to the requirements of the firm. She writes... Checking himself at the door was no great sacrifice for Abbott, forged in the Jesuitical tradition of men for others. Middle-class Catholics such as Tony Abbott are socialised from birth to offset their privilege through serving causes larger than themselves. One must never waste or apologise for one's talent, but one must always deploy it for a higher purpose. For Abbott, on the precipice of fulfilling his destiny in politics, it would have seemed like collegiality, not outright soul-selling, to become a man for Peter and for Brian down in party headquarters, a man for the colleagues, a man for the Liberal Party base, a man for Rupert and for Alan Jones and for Ray Hadley when Scott Morrison wasn't available. <laughs> this would have felt like duty in the best sense, she continues. No man left behind, eyes firmly on the prize. It's, uh, it's brutal. It's a brutal review, um, although it's not an unsympathetic one in a way, uh, but it's brutal stuff about a partisan politician who no doubt believes he's doing the right thing, or at least believes he believes he's doing the right thing, and I'm, there's more than I can sometimes hope for, so don't, you know, like I'm not. And look, I'm not desperate to compare myself to Tony Abbott. Um, even if, like Tony Abbott, there is a sense in which I live and write as a partisan, I think there is a difference. And it's not just that I don't have the burden of a Jesuit education. Uh, I'm a Christian Brothers boy. We're the ones mocked by the Jesuit characters in James Joyce as Paddy Stink and Mickey Muck. The the other difference, really, is that I'm a Labour partisan and no-one ever called my party a firm. I write in the Gillard Project, Labour is more different and different in more ways than ever I understood. It's obvious our own structures and theory of self are different. We have our own ecclesiology. No-one rats on the Liberals. But in government, I learned that Labour is actually a different kind of thing. The difference between Labour and other parties is ontological. We are a party of initiative. And we operate in a system mostly made up of parties of resistance. Things begin in labor, they begin with and through labor, in a system with so many incentives to stop things happening. We're not just a cause, we cause things. That's my view of labor. And in turn, it's my view that judging the integrity of the partisan is inseparable from judging the conduct of the party he or she signs up to. Inseparable from an actual political judgment about the rights and wrongs of the parties. You can't judge it from a stance of false neutrality. Orwell, Orwell, if he is a secular saint, is so not because he rejected solidarity, but because he rejected Stalinism. And if you believe, as I'm inclined to believe, that the real test in, in your public life is whose side are you on, then the real ethical question becomes not how closely you stick to your side, not whether you're as faithful as Freudenberg or as skeptical as Watson or as dissenting as Orwell, but whether your side is right. So not just your integrity as a partisan, but the integrity of your party. The partisan doesn't get a free pass. He accepts a larger conscientious burden. I allow myself to be held accountable, not only for my own deeds and words, but for those of my party. If you're gonna follow orders, you'd better choose your commander carefully. I do think you can be a good person and a good partisan. There's a related question, which is can you be a good writer too? I hope so, uh, and no doubt you all here will have a view soon enough. Uh, But that all well word picture, like a line of type cast solid, uh, should haunt any speechwriter tempted to bromides. But we can talk about that next time. Thank you. did you feel um when you wrote the speech and then it got changed by the strategist and it disappeared as it went through the roof how did you feel about that process um i used to say it's it's all right mate. it's not my first novel um uh but it doesn't mean i didn't great my grind my teeth occasionally uh i think you know if you want complete creative control you get to write in a garret not in a vip um, and you know the other thing is that you're writing for someone else and so. I, I think for any speechwriter, you know, if the principle changes it, that's fine, that's what you want. Um, You know, it's a a collective creative process sometimes. Um, And it's tricky because the challenge, you know, the the most enjoyable speeches to write were ones that didn't carry a lot of politics. And so in turn they didn't have to be heavily negotiated and compromised. So, you know, everyone likes to write a book launch um, or a statue opening or a, um, you know, or in, in a certain sense funerals and stuff where you can just basically say something. It sounds nice, and it puts the speechwriter in a good—it puts the speech giver in a good light. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but you know, the challenge—it's politically responsible speech, and so you've got to—you've got to get the line up, you know. Um, and you've got to embrace that responsibility. Like, it's not—it's not there to make you or even her look smart. It's like it's there to get a message across to people who aren't watching very closely. So, I suppose I—I I, I reconcile myself to it.
0: Thank you. Um, as a budding writer myself, I just wanted to know how you actually write a speech. In particular, would you observe and respond to Julia's tone and then write your speech, or did you create the tone within your speech, which then she would?
1: Um, I was probably f- I was fortunate in a way to have known her before going to work for us. I'd worked in the opposition fairly, cl- and not I hadn't worked for Julia Gillard as an opposition advisor, but I'd worked closely with her working for other politicians. Um, I had occasionally contributed to her speeches as well. The, thing I sort of the most practically useful thing I could do was to read her transcripts like to read um to read records of her um uh remarks that were off the cuff uh, and they often gave me language of hers that um that worked or it sort of said something about what she was thinking about at the moment or something like that um but uh you know, most often we didn't speak for very long before I'd draft something, like we might speak for 10 or 15 minutes and then I'd have to go away and make a full draft, because in the end you're debating the words and there's not, until you've got something on paper, there's not a lot to talk about in a, in a funny sort of way. Um, we sort of, over time, in a iterative relationship where you're working with someone for a long period, you develop some shorthand and some ideas that you share, swap between you. But um, yeah, I think, uh, I, I, like I hope I started with her with her tone. But Sometimes I, sometimes I doubted myself. <laughs> It worried me. There were two speechwriters, really, most of the days, me and a guy called Carl Green. And it worried me that she usually knew which of us had drafted a speech, even if it didn't say so on the on the draft, which suggested to me that we weren't always completely inhabiting her voice. But um, yeah, she tended to know who'd done it. Yeah.
0: Arguably, Miss Gillard's most famous, most powerful speech was her misogyny speech, which you didn't play a very large role in. Because That's true. She <laughs> <laughs> Firstly, did that frustrate you? And secondly, what did you think about the speech and the Well, that? the
1: frustrating thing was that I missed the first half of it. Um, <laughs> it was after question time, so I used to watch the first, you know, 10 or 15 minutes of question time until things settled down, and then I'd try and get some work done, because it was a happy sort of hour and a half where no one would come around and harass you. So I'd try and get some writing done, usually. Um, and this day, I'm just kind of sitting there, kind of tapping away on some appalling economic speech that no one will ever remember. And, um, I sort of looked over my shoulder at the TV, which was on Muse, and I could see it really hooking in. I thought, like, oh, I might, you know. I wonder what this is, it looks like she's going hard. Um, so I turned the volume up, and, yeah, he was checking his watch, and she was tearing his head off for it. It was fantastic. <laughs> um, uh, and, look, I mean, it is, look, it's a confronting moment for any speechwriter when, you know, the speech that goes around the world is one that, you know, she's written herself in the shower 500 times, clearly. Um, LAUGHTER Uh, And, you know, while walking and, you know, while kind of knitting and, you know, while stopped at the traffic lights and, you know, just thinking, and then I'm going to tell him. Um, But um, uh, I think, like, what it tells me is that they, they, they they could all write their own speeches if they had time, right? Just like they could probably paint their own houses, too. And, you know, they all give a better speech when they can do it themselves. But what we expected them to do is to do all these other things. And so, inevitably you know, it's impossible for, unless unless it's a topic which they've given some considerable thought to, like, you know, his disrespects for her, um, uh, it's, you know, it's hard for them to get it done, yeah. So, no, I I suppose I just, you know, it was a good speech, you know. (laughs) Michael, can you talk a little bit, uh, over here. G'day. G'day, how are you? Um, Could you talk a little bit about the process and practicalities working with the bureaucracy, particularly the Prime Minister's own department in preparation of speeches and sourcing material? Mm. Um, we were very well, so um, that's a good, that's an interesting question. It's really uh, hard for, I think, for the uh, bureaucracy to effectively support speech writing. So there's lots of other functions that the bureaucracy clearly has, the, I, and I'm, a, I'm formerly a public servant myself, um, I think it's really hard for the bureaucracy to, to effectively support speech writing because it's so um, quintessentially personal and also to the, to, the to the speech giver also because it's done inevitably in a compressed period of time like you really can't start early just politics changes too dynamically and it's just too hard and there's no point starting more than 10 days out really um, and so inevitably this you know there's this sort of high quality uh, uh, appropriately conservative quality assurance settings in the APS mean that they just can't turn it around in five minutes for you um, and it's not fair to ask them to. So I think that's that's one challenge that the bureaucracy faces. Um, we were really fortunate that we had a, a a really effective comms team in PMC, which had other roles within PMC as well. Um, but um, but a number of really good writers who supported the PM, particularly on uh, major occasion speeches or were sort of national occasions, other than other than politics. Um, so that in that case, frequently those would be drafted. We'd, we'd get a drafted speech, um, and often have to do very little for it, because um, they're really good. Um, the other, the interesting area of interaction that was most kind of active, I suppose, would be international speeches, where there was a quite a variety of, of, um, of official advice inputs, um, and those didn't just go to kind of checking or kind of content provision, but to kind of dynamically deciding what the policy was. Um, Tip Most often speeches weren't announcing domestic policy. They'd sort of argue, make a case for domestic policy or make a case about economics. It tended to be more true that for international speeches there, were, there was a greater sense that we were actually announcing the government's position in them, I think particularly of Afghanistan policy speeches. Uh, and so there was, it felt like we were actually negotiating policy by negotiating the speech. Um, I think sometimes we got more advice than assistance. Um, but... Um, but uh, but on the other hand, like overall, I think what we what we got was the best that we could get out of them, and I think so far as there were failings, you know, they were the product we, we, we would ask the wrong questions at the wrong time or in the wrong way. Uh, more than the answer would be a problem.
0: Michael, as a um, a person who's studied the Labour tradition in Australia for some time, obviously. Um, who would you have loved to have been able to write for? Um, one of the great Labor orators of the time, perhaps. Who do you think you would have liked to have written for?
1: I'd love to have written for Ryan. <laughs> Ryan was the, Ryan was the Queensland Premier of the First World War, um, who stood against conscription, uh, who stood against Hughes. Uh, Ryan's death was the great calamity of Labor in the nineteen twenties, um, and. Uh, He's a large figure, uh, a really interesting figure. Um, He was a professional and a guy of, in some respects, liberal tendencies uh, in a period after the war where Labor was left really only with socialists and Catholics, like the two groups that opposed conscription. Ryan had the potential to um, retain our position as a national party uh, and his, his death was just a disaster for Labour. And and when you think about how poorly governed Australia was in the 1920s, a great tragedy for Australia too.
0: Um, Much is made of shortened zingers at the moment.
1: I reckon they're all right.
0: Um, Some of of them are all right.
1: You've got to have a thing. Yeah, but I suppose the question is, how does a speechwriter look at those kind of sound bites that reduce...
0: Something that might have had a great deal of effort into something other than one might have wished to be. We we'll wash standby. our
1: hands of them and blame the press secretaries. <laughs> 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 I love the press secretaries. There's some of them here, but um, uh, <laughs> we're, uh, we're 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 uh, we're we're both labouring in the same vineyard. But um, you know, like uh, they have to they have to produce you know ma- wine for mass consumption. So um, uh, I don't envy them their role. I reckon the zingers are okay. Like it's easy for an opposition leader to be just for no one to know anything about a federal opposition leader, just being in the news at all. Um, and so having a thing and for that thing not to be whinging or knocking, I actually think is I don't think it's bad for him at all. it's like it's got obviously corny, but geez, you know. Kevin Rudd had a few corny um, sayings, didn't he? It didn't hurt him, so yeah. Hi. If
0: you can answer this one, which What's Labour that? oh no, which politician if you had the choice, would you write for now, if you had any now, choice?
1: Luke Luke is a very interesting guy, um, the new New South Wales Labor leader. Uh, very interesting guy, got a big bookshelf and a serious hinterland. Um, and, a, and he's got the job in front of him too, like he's the boy with the wheelbarrow, but um, he, um, uh, he's an interesting person. And I have some hope, perhaps even confidence, that what he's going to do in New South Wales Labor will be quite important. Um, and new South Wales Labor in some respects needs a new model um, of, of its politics as as well as of the of a kind of governing model. And Foley's a, a thinker, if nothing else. And writing for thinkers is interesting, you know. Um, I've been lucky in that respect. Um yeah, f is interesting. Hello um, mate. Yeah, okay, Michael. Um yeah, halfway through your book, uh, great read. The second um, half's better. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was interested in your comment earlier that um, the policy project of, of Gillard uh, is more interesting than the politics of the Labor caucus. Um, I- is there a problem that perhaps there's not enough partisans amongst our elected people, and uh, just your reflections on how you know that has sub- sabotaged uh, potentially what could have been you know a great policy project for Australia? I think. I don't know, actually. Like, in a funny way, I I think Labor is more ideologically unified today than probably at any time in its history. And paradoxically, what that means is that our teeth for ideological argument have been blunted. um, That the the formation that people within the Labor movement used to get in ideological debate when the party was heavily split and heavily divided over ideology was one of the few advantages of that period, you know. Um, And in a kind of a post-Cold War period where there's a really, I think... There's not nothing to debate within the Labor Party, but the essential ideological questions, you know, reside in a pretty, you know, clear social democratic fusion. I don't think there's quite the same ability for our uh, activists of all kind of kinds to make an to make a really clearly ideological case. So once, a long, quite a long time ago, twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, I went to a Fabian event in Sydney, which of course was discussing the decline of the Labor Party, and um, it was. Um, A guy up the back, uh, after this sort of, you know, Guy Rundle and Rebecca Huntley and a few other people said sensible things, a bloke up the back got up and said, look, the problem is the party's never been an ideas factory. We only ever got ideas from two places, the Catholic Church and the Communist Party, and they're both stuffed. Um, (laughs) uh, And, um, like, we did have some ideas, but... um, (laughs) But there's something in it, that like that kind of huge ideological force that, uh, that, that came from the conflict within um, and, and about what, what it meant to be the left has sort of faded a bit. And maybe that's part of it. Now there's a greater sense that you end up transactional... in, in, you know, in close, in transactional arguments about, about position. You know. There's a Tory mate of mine who's very keen to get a question in, so don't miss him. Yeah. Good, um, yeah, good evening, Michael. Yeah. Um, in your book, you sort of... Talk about the staff life and categorise
0: different staffers, and, and I think you refer to yourself as a a, a lifer. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, was there a moment where you had that realisation, and, and what sort of impact that would have, that perspective on your, your role as a a? I'd partly writer?
1: say that optimistically, like I'm, I've I've, I've got a life length mortgage, so I, so I, mean, I kind of I'm hoping that the national secretary and a few leaders and others read that and think, oh, I suppose we're stuck with him. Um, uh, so that's one reason for saying that. But no, I well. Uh, the night before, the, the, Friday night of the, two, the Friday night before the 2004 election there was a, a dinner um, for the campaign headquarters staff at the Pavilion Hotel um, and uh, Sandy Rippengale, who um, some of you would know, um, is a real mainstay of our National Secretariat staff um, and a real soldier for us. Um, said to me in passing, I said, what are you going to do when we lose, right? Which was, first of all, a pretty confronting thing to say the night before the election. Um, I was like, oh, okay, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, and I said, oh, stay, I suppose. Um, and she said, yeah, you're a lifer, um, which was extremely flattering. Um, uh, and I suppose, you know, like people move in and through politics in different ways, um, and many people, uh, it's the peak of their work in the public sector, and for, for others, it's a kind of a peak of their work in... kind of communications and for other people it's a period of a kind of working in a mission-based organisation that they're fortunate to get Um, like I've been really lucky basically to sort of cling to the wreckage a few times um, and uh, and be asked to stay Um, so yeah I don't know whether like Sandy said that to me I'm not sure whether I quite believed it at the time Um, it's sort of an ambition in a way to be a lifer you know if you can just stay in the game
0: Um, just following on from that, who is your favourite person to
1: work with in the PMO? <laughs> <laughs> just, just kidding. Hello, just Katarina. kidding. Hi, Katarina. <laughs> Hi. Just kidding.
0: Um, could you just share a kind of personal moment that you've shared with the PM that you might have shared in the book or that you haven't, that um, the people here wouldn't know about? Uh, I
1: remember uh, catching... <laughs> I, uh, I remember catching a catching the car with the PM from... The Sydney CBD to the airport uh, the day uh, on, on the afternoon following uh, the pm and premier o 'Farrell signing up to uh, the what I like to think of as the Gillard School funding reforms um, uh, which was quite a day for governing and quite a day for politics, and I think the pen with which it was signed is in the room actually, um, but uh, so there it is <laughs> but um, here it is uh, anyway she um, I sat there in the back seat while she had a phone call with O'Farrell thanking him and then while she had these kind of, had to make these sympathetic sounds while O'Farrell described the phone call he just had with the opposition leader's chief of staff. <laughs> and uh, she said, oh, that sounds pretty rough. Yeah. oh, really? <laughs> uh, and it was just sort of classic kind of Julia, really, like her kind of pragmatic, kind of sympathetic touch with a, with a bloke um, and her sort of wry humour. She often... People say strange things to Prime Ministers, you know, um, and she often just sort of widened her eyes a bit and uh, would tell you the story afterwards without much commentary. She came back from France once and said, so Sarkozy, Sarkozy says to me, after all, there are no Chinese buried at Villers-Bretonneux. <laughs> 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 and just sort of went, like, <laughs> all. Uh, she was, she was a, a master of understatement, as you, as, as you know.
0: Um, when Rosemary Follett was Chief Minister, I spoke to a colleague of mine who was her speechwriter, and she said it was quite schizophrenic sometimes that she would think of something up here and later it would come from the voice over there. Um, for a while I shared a house with one of Barry Jones's speechwriters, and he, uh-huh. would get, uh, he would get very upset because he felt he was never acknowledged. And then Barry Jones produced a book on his speeches and my friend didn't uh, didn't get acknowledged at all and he was really <laughs> irate so what's that, that really relationship like and is it up to the speechwriter to put gratitude in the speeches to the <laughs> speechwriter?
1: <laughs> it was i once i once uh one of the weird jobs i had to do was uh, and w- which we would share around was writing the pm's valedictory speeches for the end of the parliamentary year which are mostly like a list of 600 people to thank. Um, and uh, in thanking her private staff, I just wrote down the various names that she'd asked us to include, including my own. Uh, she then drops in an encomium of praise to me and then tells the palmer that I would written it, which was a lie, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, very, very unkind. Um, I, I can't imagine writing speeches for Barry, for Barry Jones. I just cannot imagine what an experience that would be. I sat in front of Barry Jones at the cricket once at, at the Prime Minister's 11, uh, where he was sitting immediately behind me next to Jan McLucas and fogged on, without, like, without, seemingly with circular breathing... Um, <laughs> uh, about, about Freud's antiquities, which were then touring Australia. And uh, a mate of mine who's <laughs> here said to me afterwards, it was like, you know, when you sit there and you watch the cricket and you've got the ABC commentary, it was as if we'd accidentally switched it to Radio National. And Radio <laughs> National is sort of playing endlessly in the background while we're watching the cricket. But, um, oh, look, I mean, you, I actually think, look, we actually probably get, uh, I actually think speechwriters get too much recognition. Like, Watson's book established a prestige for speechwriters. And in a way, Freudenberg's role within the Labor Party established a prestige for. Speech writing, which is out of all proportion to its actual political importance, and certainly out of proportion to its seniority within the office or its actual demands. Um, like I had much, I, I worked a lot harder when I was policy director to the opposition leader than when I was speechwriter. That's for sure. Um, and I had more responsibility by far. Um, but speechwriter is a job that people know what it means. I suppose anyway. I actually, think we get more, we don't lack for recognition. Um, and you know, if you look at, uh, and it's very easy to. I think typically that process, including the changes they make, improves the speech. Usually it's better. I read Schles- uh, not book, Ted Sorensen's book about the Kennedy presidency clearly lacks John F. Kennedy's editorial hand. Um, it is a very long and rather hortatory book. It's a, it's a really interesting book, but it, like, it clearly, he, was, he was clearly better writing for his speech rather than he was let off the leash, and he was pretty good. Hello, Lyle. Hello, Michael. I did threaten to come along and heckle, but I've already got my money's worth. That's right, Chalmers' thre- baby's uh, been heckling, so threat. it's fine. <laughs> um, I suspect Australians think probably we don't get great political speeches like we used to. We, you know, we don't get, we shall fight them on the beaches, or I, I had a dream, without realizing that's kind of their own fault. Uh, that uh, It's ju- not that people can't write Write them or deliver them, it's just that the Gettysburg address in reply to the budget just wouldn't fly in yeah, Australian yeah, politics. Yeah. Um, so, a- against that background, how liberating was it to actually be able to write a speech for, for the, uh, the Prime Minister to deliver it to Congress? Well, that is a great question, mate. Thank you, and it's my shout. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was rather liberating, yes. <laughs> the, I do think, look, you're right, I mean, I think that um, our Uh, Partly, our parliament—the fact that we're a parliamentary system, not a republican system—just creates fewer of these kind of major forums. You know, a great occasion makes a great speech, Um, and the nature of our system doesn't generate the kinds of occasions which nominating conventions and you know, and and all the rest of it generate. I think that's a big part of it. Um, We also have uh, David Malouf wrote a really interesting. It was probably in his Boy lectures about Australian, sort of Australian culture broadly, uh, and and the culture. The culture of our language and the language of our culture, including our political culture, and talked about how we're, fa- we're a creature of the 18th century. That is Australia. Um, Australia's English-speaking culture is a creature of the 18th century, and the American is a creature of, of an earlier period and a far more dramatic and romantic and kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of ideologically fermenting kind of period. And ours is a much more uh, empirical, empiricist might be polite, you know, utilitarian, um, you know, Benthamite kind of period. Uh, period of foundation so I think we're pretty matter of fact and you know laconic which I think probably gives us better government um, uh, and possibly even a better politics but yeah it does give us fewer speeches going to the US you just have to go crazy it's fantastic I like it. we, we, we spent a week and a half drafting this thing and every time a new draft came back out ch- the chief of staff said more cheese we need more cheese <laughs> More cheese, and we just spread layers of cheese across this thing, you know. Uh, and it worked, it's and but it, more, that's what they actually need. Like, they would think, if you gave a kind of a, what would, like the level of speech, like the peak kind of level of rhetoric you can hit in Australia, for a Labour politician, it's probably New South Wales Conference, uh, which is held in the New South Wales Town Hall, uh, and is a great room, uh, and a big occasion. And it's also always great drama because the leader is always under the pump, right? <laughs> and always has to save their leadership with this speech. Um, so that helps. Um, maybe only my leaders, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> uh, so that helps. But you know, other than that, there's not many great... You know, the, the West Australian Labour Party conference is usually held at, at the dining room at a racecourse. Um, mm-hmm. Like, literally. Uh, um, and so, you know, you're just not good, like it's not a great proscenium march behind you that really allows you to go crazy. Um, so when you're in when you're in Washington and you're in front of huge piles of, of you know neoclassical statuary, it's pretty hard to overdo it. You um, <laughs> can sort of quote Lincoln and then say, as it says there, you know. <laughs> and, and Lincoln is Lincoln is literally graven in stone, so you're allowed to use words like graven, you know. <laughs> like, um, so yeah, it's it's fun going to America. Yeah, yeah, I recommend it. Good
0: Hi, Michael. Um, I was wondering if there are any speeches written by other people that are real touchstones for you that you keep returning to and draw inspiration from?
1: Uh, the speech written by the Prime Minister and my colleague Carl Green for the uh, for the apology to uh, survivors of forced adoption um, given in 2012 was really a, a tour de force. Um, and it's... It's also a tour de force of her personality given on a day where leadership issues boiled over in an astonishing way and she had to do this really important national thing uh, and it was beautiful. So that's that's one, like from our time. Um, I actually, sounds a bit pretentious, so I like, I, I, the, um, the Gospels are full of good speeches um, and, uh, and also the, uh, Paul's letters are interesting in the way they, explain an ideology, they're quite interesting in the way they explain a, a, all of Paul's letters are about kind of the relationship between the old law and the new law and what, trying to establish change and continuity, or trying to establish continuity and change, uh, which is good gear for a political speech because you are constantly, you know, chucking out something you said was critical five minutes ago and, you know, explaining why that's, why that reflects an arrow-like consistency of uh, thinking. Um, so they're, they're, quite, they're quite interesting um, and they, uh, are also kind of, they still contain strong echoes in our culture. Like, there's not much else in, in literature that is still genuinely, even if people don't recognise it as from the Bible, they recognise it as a kind of a grand phrase. Um, but also uh, Curtin's speeches, um, some of them are pretty remarkable, um, Include the speech he gave during the Battle of the Coral Sea um, is this uh, very kind of, australian kind of very pragmatic curtain could be at times quite flowery it's this very business like kind of report from the front about what's happening uh, and he says uh, uh, men are fighting for australia tonight those who are not fighting have no excuse for not working um, and really asks people on the home front to redouble their efforts and it's quite beasley says it's australia's gettysburg and it's certainly short too like it's a really short speech like the gettysburg address that's one and i don't know where that was written by don rogers who wrote for wrote a lot of things for but Rogers is an interesting figure to read things that he wrote, to. Hi,
0: Hi, Michael. Um, uh, I think uh, quite a few speech writers, um, particularly those of um, Bill Clinton, Gordon Brown and um, Kevin Rudd have kind of complained that they would spend days or weeks working on a speech for uh, just for the leader to come in at the last minute and rewrite everything and make it a shambles. Um, did you find initially Julie Gillard was like that or was she always um, kind of just relaxed with letting the speech writers do their thing?
1: She's a very systematic person. She probably would have been better if she'd been more demanding in a way. Um, she certainly was no Gordon Brown. Um, uh, she... Um, no, actually, I think like Julia's view was basically like, you can run politics as a kind of permanent crisis and try and constantly manage a crisis. And, you really can't operate like that for years years on end you, you have to have a capacity to conduct operations in a way that means that when there's an actual crisis you can crisis manage but you have to be able to conduct political operations out out of an atmosphere of crisis um and so this was you know one of her strengths was that we basically had pretty, particularly with after about after the first few months had a really fairly clear routine like basically everything was done the first phases of all all the drafts would be in this thing called the pack by Friday sometime, hopefully Friday lunchtime, um, and the PM would read it on Saturday at the Lodge or on Sunday at the Lodge uh, and send back comments and we'd put them in and then it was done, you know. Um, sometimes we probably sacrificed the sort of 1% of extra value that you might get out of that kind of neurotic panic at the last minute, but um, we probably overall got a better. We probably raised the level of the mean even if we sacrificed the level of the peak. Um, uh, but um, the best, I found like the, the people who drove me mad, Well, like, the principal can bugger up the speech, it's, you know, it's the National Security Council wanting to comment on your jokes, it really drives you mental. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and believe me they do, it's amazing. Like, so it, you want to read about that process. The, part of the reason I don't talk about it a lot in the book is because, um, well i talk about it a little bit, but it's because there's a couple of books that have been written that just completely nail it. Um, Peggy Noonan, what I saw at the Revolution, um, describes this hilariously and says, um, Sometimes sending my draft out into the system to be commented on felt like sending a beautiful infant unicorn into the forest and it would come back with its flesh torn and arrows out of it and all the rest of it, but, but, but perhaps I understate, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, William Sapphire, who was one of Nixon's speech writers, his book is really interesting, called Before the Fall. He, he also, he describes basically the same, the same staffing process. And nothing is different. It was really interesting to write. And so I didn't write about it much, because honestly, it's just like they wrote it. It's really interesting. Um, but no, you sort of feel like the person who's giving the speech has got a right to bugger eyes around with her at the last minute. It's everyone else who you want to get right out of your hair, so. Thank you. Thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.